If you would uh, reach for your Bible and stand with me for the scripture reading this morning. Turning to Haggai, we'll be reading chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, as Pastor Bruce concludes the series. Church on the Rise, today we have hope for rising up. We'll see that in our fourth and final message. Once again, we'll be reading Haggai, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, and every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Father, we come to you this morning and expect great things. Open our hearts and minds to, to learn uh, how to be a church that's on the rise uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you are having a good day so far? You know, yeah, even though you lost an hour of sleep. And uh, all right, good day. I'm glad to hear that. But I, I suspect there are some people here that you're not having a good day. Maybe you're having a bad day. And... Uh, here are ten signs to have you know you're having a bad day. Are you ready? In fact, how many of you feel like this right here? You wake up in the morning and that's how you feel? Well, ten signs you're having a bad day. You know you're having a bad day when, number one, it costs more to fill up your car than it did to buy it. That's becoming more true today, isn't it? You know you're having a bad day when the moths in your money belt are starving to death. You're having a bad day. Number three, you know you're having a bad day when people send your wife sympathy cards on your anniversary. (laughs) You're having a bad day. Number four, when your income tax refund check bounces. Oh, yes. You laugh, but you laugh. Just wait. You know you're having a bad day when number five, you put both contacts in the same eye. Has anybody ever done that? few of you? All right. You know you're having a bad day when number six, your doctor tells you that you're allergic to chocolate. Oh, yeah. You know you're having a bad day, number seven, when you call your wife and tell her that you'd like to eat out tonight. And when you get home, you find a sandwich on the front porch. (laughs) It's a bad day. You know you're having a bad day when number eight, your horn sticks on the freeway behind 32 Hell's Angels motorcyclists. Number nine, you know you're having a bad day when your twin sister forgets your birthday. That's bad. And then last but not least, number ten, you know you're having a bad day when you wake up and discover your waterbed broke and then you realize, I don't have a waterbed. That's a bad day. Well, on a more serious note here, notice this in your notes there. Have you ever been so discouraged in your life that you had absolutely no desire to rise up and live for God? You know, all of us need some encouragement. And not just any encouragement, some special encouragement from time to time. We need the kind of encouragement, we need the kind of hope that only God can offer to us. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're struggling right now in some area of your life 
and you feel like just giving up. You feel like giving up on God and your faith and all that you know to be true. Perhaps some of you have come to a crossroads in your life and you're just not really sure if it's worth living for God. Maybe you've been following Christ for some time, but now you're going through a trial that's kind of causing you to doubt and second-guess your commitment to Jesus Christ. And perhaps many of you, uh, you're, you're, just, you're discouraged because you're just going through the motions. You're tired. You're discouraged. And you're down. And you just need some hope. You need to be lifted up. As we conclude our series on the book of Haggai, God gives us some hope for rising up and living for him. In fact, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, found himself in a pretty discouraging situation as well. He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, but instead of wearing a crown and sitting on the throne, Zerubbabel was just a puppet governor of a struggling Jewish nation. And if you remember what we've learned so far in the book of Haggai, there was a remnant of Jewish people, about 50,000 of them, that returned to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. And they were still under the Persian rule. They were still surrounded by enemies who were stronger than them and who wanted to see their demise. And on top of all this, the people who returned were more concerned with their own self-interest than with obeying God. And although they began to rebuild the temple 16 years later, many of the people were outwardly religious. They were, in a sense, just kind of going through the motions, but their hearts were contaminated with sin. And so here's the picture that you have before Zerubbabel, the governor of Judea, the man who was called to lead these people now in the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was a long way from being finished. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were were torn down, leaving the city vulnerable to attack. And the people themselves were struggling with discouragement, none unlike what sometimes we struggle with. This was the picture on December the 18th of 520 B.C. In fact, it's the same date that we saw last Sunday in the third message of Haggai. Haggai comes, he gives a message in the third third time to the people themselves and now right after that message it's as if he sets aside the leaders rubble and he says rubble come here i got something i want to share with you as one author wrote sometimes it's just so difficult to keep on going when you're hip deep in alligators with no way to drain the swamp and sometimes you just feel that way and that's exactly how rubble felt He looked at his discouraged workers in front of him. He listened to the howling opponents surrounding him, and he surveyed the massive job that lay before him, and he felt like giving up. Why go on, God? What's the use? And it's at that point that God comes to Zerubbabel through the prophet Haggai and puts his arm around him and says, Listen, I've got a message of hope for you and the people. I got a message that will fill you with encouragement to rise up and keep living for me, for my glory. Now, before we look at this message of hope from God, 
We need to understand that although this message is directed to Zerubbabel himself, the language that we're going to see here goes way beyond anything that was fulfilled in his day. Yes, there was a a near-term fulfillment, if you will, in the governor of Judah, this man named Zerubbabel. But Haggai is, is really looking forward to that, what we would call the day of the Lord, when God's plan for history will be fulfilled in the crowning of his son, the Messiah, who will reign as king in the millennial kingdom here on earth. And so while you have uh, these words spoken to Zerubbabel, that have application to him in 520 B.C., listen, there is a prophetic nature in what Haggai is saying too, and it's prophesying, in a sense, about the coming Messiah. One who has already come the first time, but the one who will come again to reign in the millennial kingdom. You say, well, what does all this mean? It simply means that what we're going to see is that God's message of hope has more to do with Jesus Christ, the coming king, than it does with Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And that's why this is not only a message of hope for Zerubbabel in 520 B.C., but this is a message of hope for us today on March the 13th, 2011. And let me tell you, who doesn't need a message of hope? We all need a message of hope from time to time. We all need a word from God to lift us up, to encourage us, to keep going, not to give up, not to quit, not to throw in the towel. And that's what God gives to Zerubbabel and the people and to you and I today through the prophet Haggai in this fourth and final message. So let's look at it here. Two simple points, and they, I hope, are encouraging points for you to rise up for the Lord. Number one, be encouraged. Be encouraged because our Lord will prevail. Our Lord will prevail, and he will do so as the sovereign king. In this fourth and final message, Haggai tells Zerubbabel not to fret about the situation surrounding him, not to fear about the hostile enemies around him, and about what's going on. You see, from Zerubbabel's perspective, the situation looked pretty bleak. It looked pretty dire, and he was losing his hope. But Haggai says, don't worry about the surrounding enemies. Don't be over-anxious about all the struggling Jewish nation. Don't fear what will happen. Instead, be encouraged because God is at work and the Lord will prevail even though it may not seem like it now. You say, well, how would the Lord prevail? How will this happen as the sovereign king? Well, let me show you this, two things here. Number one, first of all, as the sovereign king the Lord's judgment will come. He reminds Zerubbabel that the Lord's judgment will come. Now here's a question. Have you ever thought or ever wondered to yourself, man, why is it that people who reject God's word and reject God's way of living seem to just kind of get away with how they're living in life? In fact, they not only, it not only seems they're getting away with it, but they seem to be prospering here on this earth. God, what's the deal with that? Why is that? I mean, sure, we all wonder that sometimes. And I'm sure Zerubbabel must have thought the same thing when he looked around 
his little Jewish nation, and he saw all the prosperity of the surrounding nations and how hostile they were to God and his throne and what God stood for. But look what Haggai reminds him, and he reminds us in verse 21. When God comes and he says, listen, I will shake heaven and earth. Now, that phrase is not the first time that it's used in the book of Haggai. God made this statement uh, one other time. In fact, this word shake, it means to rock violently. It means to make tremble. And we got just a little picture of what this word looks like, or I should say the results of it here this last week with the earthquake in Japan and the resulting tsunami. God in his power literally made the earth shake. And we see the devastation of it. And so it means to rock violently, to make tremble it. And it almost always refers, this phrase, to God's judgment, especially at the second coming. The shaking of heaven and earth in Haggai 2.6, which is where we see it the first time, not only, would not only result in the nations bringing their wealth to fill the temple, but now God, or Haggai is using this phrase to signal the day of the Lord when he comes in judgment. In other words, a day is coming when the Lord will come, and when he does, he will literally shake the heavens and the earth. As the sovereign king, he will come in judgment of nations and people who have rejected him as their Savior and Lord. Now, let me step back here for a moment, because I don't want us to miss the application of this little phrase. You say, hey, there can be an, you bet there's an application here. Understand, the first time Jesus came, do you realize he shook the earth when he died on the cross to bring us salvation? Remember when he died? What happened in the temple? The veil torn in half and the earth shook. And it's just a small picture of what will happen the second time when he comes. And he will shake the heaven and the earth when he brings judgment to this world. And the question for us here this morning is, which will, which will the Lord bring to you? Which is the Lord bringing to you? Is he bringing his salvation or is he bringing his judgment? And your response to the Lord today makes the difference of what he will bring in eternity. So the first way the Lord would prevail as the sovereign king is his judgment will come. Listen, don't think for a minute I can get away with how I live my life. Don't think you can just get away with, with turning a blind eye to God and his word and his truth and think it doesn't matter. Don't think that people around you and how they live are just going to get away with it either. They won't. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of accounting. And God will bring his judgment for those who do not accept him as their Savior and who do not turn and repent of their sin and follow him as their Lord and Savior. The second way the Lord will prevail is number two. As the sovereign king, the Lord's enemies will be crushed. His judgment will not only come, but his enemies will be crushed. Yes, these hostile nations surrounding God's people, this remnant of 50,000 people, they were very powerful. But God comes along and he tells Rubble, listen, I, the Lord of hosts, 
which is a military term, he says, listen, I am more powerful. Take comfort in that thought. Notice what God says in verse 22. Look at it. He says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. You see, the fact that the Jewish nation is small, is defenseless, makes no difference when God says, I will. I will act on behalf of my people. And what's interesting, all these little phrases here are references to God's miraculous interventions in the past on behalf of his people. In fact, you may be able to already identify through these phrases when they took place in past history. It's as almost as if, as if God is, is reminding Zerubbabel and he's reminding us that what I did in the past is just a small picture of what I will do in the future at the Battle of Armageddon when the Lord's enemies will be crushed once and for all. Think about it with me. One day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth will be burned up, according to 2 Peter 3.10. One day, lightning will shine from east to west, from one end of heaven to another, according to Matthew 24.27. One day, Jesus will come again, and the kings of the earth will look for the rocks to fall on them, and mountains to hide them from the mere face of him who sits on the throne, according to Revelation 6.15. And on that day... The Lord says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. On that day, the Lord will destroy the strength of the Gentile nations like he did with the Pharaoh in the Exodus. On that day, the Lord will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them like he did with the Egyptian soldiers at the Red Sea. And on that day, the Lord will cause every person to fall by the sword of his brother like he did when Gideon and his 300 band of brothers faced the Midianite army. In other words, what God is reminding us here, he's saying, I'm going to do all these things, and I've already given you a preview of what it looks like. Get ready, because my enemies will not prevail. I will bring judgment, and my enemies will be crushed. And they will be crushed once and for all. Make no mistake about it. Oh, how powerful the Lord is in his judgment. But folks, listen to me. Please, please, don't forget how gracious the Lord is in his salvation. Do you remember in overthrowing Sodom and Gomorrah? Who did the Lord save? Lot and his family. And in destroying the strength of Egypt, which was symbolized in the chariots and their riders, the Lord saved his people so that they might stand still and stand in awe of the salvation of the Lord. And so it will be on the day of the Lord when he returns. Those who have rejected the gospel will suffer punishment and eternal destruction. But those who have accepted the gospel will be saved, and we will stand in awe 
of the Lord's salvation. And so please be reminded that, yes, the Lord is powerful in his judgment, but he is gracious in his salvation. You say, well, what does all this mean? It simply means if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have hope because our Lord will prevail as the sovereign king. So be encouraged. Rise up and do so in hope. But our Lord will do more than just prevail as the sovereign king. God comes through Haggai to remind Zerubbabel and us, number two, he says be encouraged because our Lord will reign as well. And he will reign as the signet ring. I found it humorous that an uh, Oregon newspaper printed a, a correction, if you will. In fact, Kansas City Star even does this. Sometimes you can see it in a little box. They'll have a correction area where they printed a mistake and then they make it right. And, uh, and so a correction notice in an Oregon newspaper read, and I quote, the title of First Christian Church program in last week's newspaper was written as, Our God Resigns. The actual title is, Our God Reigns. What a difference one little letter makes. Our God Resigns versus Our God Reigns. And yet, how many of us Listen, how many of us live as if our God has resigned? And I understand it's easy to do when you watch the news. And we look around our world, and we think, where is God in the midst of all this? Has he abandoned his throne? It's interesting, six times, six times, in verses 21, 22, and 23, God says, I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. Six times. You almost get the impression that God, you know what, he knows what he's doing. He has a plan, and he's doing it. Listen, history isn't just careening out of control with God desperately trying to grab the wheel. No, God controls all the events of history for his purpose and for his glory. And so at a time in the history of the Jewish nation, when their future looked pretty hopeless, Haggai ends his final message by giving Zerubbabel a huge reason to hope. Notice what Haggai says in verse 23. He says, in that day, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, says the Lord, and will make you as a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what God is saying is, again, it's personally directed to Zerubbabel. And you may be wondering, well, man, that sounds pretty cool for Zerubbabel's sake. I'm glad God's telling him that. But how does any of this give me hope today? I mean, that was in 520 B.C. What does this have to do with me today in 2011? And how does this give me hope? Well, remember what we said at the beginning. Because this is prophetic in nature, 
what God is saying will ultimately be fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why, listen to me, we should be the most hope-filled people on the face of the earth. Now, let me see if I can show you why that's the case and show you how all of this in this little verse should give us some hope today and for the rest of our lives. First of all, number one, look at it with me. God's eternal plan is carried out with sovereign grace. Folks, listen to me. God has a plan for history. God has a a plan for mankind. It's an eternal plan. It's a redemptive plan, and it's carried out by his sovereign grace. God tells Zerubbabel, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetil, and will make you as a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, most of us are probably not very familiar with the concept of a signet ring. And rightfully so. We don't use them. We don't have them today. They're not utilized. But it was very important to ancient kings, a signet ring was. A signet ring was usually engraved with the king's seal. And it was used to seal all official documents. And so a signet ring... It was much more than just a a piece of jewelry that you wanted to adorn yourself with. It had meaning. It had value. In fact, it was a symbol of honor and a symbol of authority and power. Why? Because the king wore it. He was the one in honor, authority, and power. And when he stamped something, it signified, if you will, that he was the one saying it. He backed it up. And since the king's signet ring was highly valued, obviously, it was well protected. In fact, he would normally wear it on his ring, or he would wear it around his neck on a chain. And he kept it with him. And we could uh, talk about this a little more, but that's enough for now. So what's going on here at a time when Zerubbabel needed to be encouraged the most? Get this, this is a cool picture here. God tells him, listen, I will take you and I will make you like my signet ring. Now that is profound. And get this, the emphasis, I believe, of Haggai's word here is more on the wearing of the signet ring, either on the finger or around the neck here, not on the using of the signet ring. You say, what's the difference here? Because The wearing of it means what? The emphasis that God is bringing to Zerubbabel is, listen, I'm going to have a close and personal relationship with you. I'm not going to abandon you. I mean, you are close to me. We, I mean, when a king wears the signet ring on himself, it's protected. And so there's an element in that relationship that Zerubbabel is going to have with God. There's an element of security and peace that comes with it. And that is an awesome thing. You say, now why would God do this for Zerubbabel? And I love God's answer that he gives to him. He simply says, for I have chosen you. That's why? Yeah, that's why. For I have chosen you, Zerubbabel. 
That's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm making you my signet ring. That's why I'm bringing you into a close relationship. And that's why I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to ensure that you can fulfill your task of rebuilding the temple simply because I have chosen you. Now, this is absolutely mind-boggling. It ought to be amazing to us. Why? Especially when you consider that Zerubbabel has done absolutely nothing to deserve this kind of special relationship with God. Think about it. He's just a man like us. He's just a person like you and me. He hasn't done anything to deserve this kind of relationship. God simply chose him. Folks, do you know what that is? That's grace. That is grace. It's sovereign grace. But wait, God's grace is even more amazing when you factor in Zerubbabel's family history. Stay with me now. You see, Zerubbabel had a grandfather named Jehoiakim. And I know you may not know that name, but let me tell you about him. Jehoiakim, many years earlier, had been one of the last kings of Judah before they were taken into Babylonian captivity. Jehoiakim, let me tell you, he was a wicked, wicked king who did not serve the Lord, who did not obey God. In fact, he was so evil that in Jeremiah chapter 22, God comes and pronounces a curse upon Jehoiakim in which he said, listen to it, you were like a signet ring on my hand. But because of your sin, I am taking you off my finger. In other words, I'm throwing it away. Then God declared later on, a few verses later, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Are you connecting the dots here? Do you see what's happening? Do you see what God is doing in his sovereign grace? God is telling Jehoiakim that he will not only be punished, but all of his descendants will be punished as well, and none of them will ever sit on the throne of David. But now God comes to Zerubbabel, and he comes with this message, and he tells his grandson, Zerubbabel, listen, I will now make you like my signet ring after I have thrown it off with Jehoiakim. Now that's the sovereign grace of God at work. The curse of his family has been lifted, and the signet ring is now back on God's finger. And the Davidic line would not die out, but would one day give the world a savior. Wow, he's right. I mean, this is amazing. And you say, well, what's this mean for me now? Listen, God, he's, just, he's, he's given us a picture. He's given us a glimpse of his amazing grace at work. God is reminding us that his redemptive plan for mankind from the very beginning throughout eternity is carried out with sovereign grace. 
You see, when God chooses us for salvation, listen to me, when he chooses you for salvation, when he chooses anyone for salvation, it's all because of his sovereign grace. So be humbled. Be humbled by the fact that God has chosen you. And not only be humbled by it, be hope-filled by it. That God has brought you salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second reason why we have hope today. Number two, God's eternal plan centers on the person of Jesus Christ. His plan centers on the person of Jesus Christ. Again, remember, Zerubbabel is is what we would call is a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. The one who has come. The one who is coming again. And the one who will reign for all eternity. And so God calls Zerubbabel. He uses this title that he gives him. He says, Zerubbabel, you're my servant. My chosen servant. Now that's a... That's a special title. It's a unique title that that God just doesn't throw around for everybody. This title was used of King David. It was also used of Moses. And it was used repeatedly of God's son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God is revealing to us here that his eternal, redemptive plan for mankind centers on the person of his son, Jesus Christ. How many of you are doing going through the reading the uh, 90 day Bible challenge you're taking that challenge several of you are and where are you guys at right now you're in Psalms so you're making your way through the Old Testament and perhaps as you read big chunks of the Old Testament you're beginning to see that all the Old Testament is pointing ahead to whom Jesus Christ they're all looking forward to the Messiah to come And when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you take the Bible and you have the Old Testament. It all focused on Christ. And the New Testament is all about Jesus Christ. And so God's plan for history, God's plan for your life, it centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, one question that may be going through our minds right now is, Well, okay, if this is all about Jesus Christ, but this is being spoken to Zerubbabel, what happened to Zerubbabel here? After all, God's making these promises to him, right? So whatever happened to this governor of Judea, as they come back from the Babylonian captivity, they're trying to reestablish themselves as a nation and rebuild this temple when everybody's against them. I mean, did he ever reign as king of Judah? And the answer is no. He never sat on a throne. He never wore a crown. He never ruled an empire. And he never enjoyed the status of royalty. But folks, listen to me. God did use him in a mighty way to lead the people to finish rebuilding the temple over the next four years. And then he just vanishes 
into the darkness of history. You say, well, what? man, that doesn't sound very encouraging. Why is this? Hold on with me. I mean, did, did God's promise to Zerubbabel here then, did all these promises just come to nothing? Did God back out on his promises? Did God just forget about him? Did he not fulfill them? And the answer is no. While Zerubbabel himself never sat on the throne of David, listen to this, one of his descendants did. You see, Zerubbabel, get this, this is so cool. I'm, I'm telling you, God is so amazing. Zerubbabel is mentioned in the genealogies of Jesus Christ in Matthew and Luke. And so while God did not fulfill these promises in Zerubbabel's lifetime, listen, they are being fulfilled through his descendant, Jesus Christ, God's signet ring by which he will reign over all the nations. And Zerubbabel plays a part in that. The angel Gabriel, Gabriel said to Jesus in Luke 1, 32 and 33, he says, and he, speaking of Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And this brings us to the last thing about God's plan for history. And that is God's eternal plan will be fulfilled in his divine timing. In his divine timing. In verse 23, at the very beginning, Haggai tells Zerubbabel these promises will ultimately be fulfilled when? What's the phrase? In that day. In that day. The problem with us, we want that day to be now, don't we? God's made all kinds of promises in this world. God, why aren't you fulfilling them? I want them now, not later. I'm tired of waiting. I'm discouraged. I want to quit. You're nowhere to be found. God says, in that day. In what day? It's a reference to what is commonly used phrase, in the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord when he will shake heaven and earth in his return to establish his millennial kingdom on earth. You say, well, when is that day coming? Listen, no one knows. Only God knows. But folks, listen, it's coming sooner than later. So get ready. Haggai ends this little short book. He ends with a message of hope for Zerubbabel and for the people. And he ends with a message of hope for you and I even today. But folks, listen, it's only a source of encouragement. It's only a message of hope if we trust God's word. If we trust God himself, there's an element of faith that permeates all this. Think about it. When Zerubbabel heard these promises, I'm sure if I was in his shoes, I would be the same way. I'm sure he hoped they would be fulfilled in his lifetime. And who doesn't hope that the Lord will return in our lifetime? Right? I know I do. And yet... Zerubbabel, just like we, we have to take God at his word and we have to trust that the Lord will fulfill these promises in his perfect timing. 
In the meantime, Zerubbabel had a job to do. Zerubbabel had to get on with the task of rebuilding the temple, as Chris so eloquently said in the second message, in honor of the paraphrase of Larry the Cable guy. He had to what? Get her done. And folks, listen to me. He's rubbable. He did it faithfully. He did it loyally. And he did it cheerfully. And God honored him for his work in the house of the Lord. In fact, it's interesting. Even in later generations, they thought very highly of Zerubbabel. His name is included with that of Joshua among the famous men of the fathers of Israel. And I personally believe that God will honor Zerubbabel in the millennial kingdom with a high and privileged position of honor and power and authority. And these promises will be fulfilled in Zerubbabel, with Zerubbabel, but ultimately in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Don't you ever think for a moment that God is not faithful and that God will not be true to his word and his promises that he makes. The question for us today is, well, what now? What now? God has a plan for mankind. It's a redemptive plan, a plan for history. And one day that plan will come to a crescendo and a climax when Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom here on earth. When God's will in heaven will now be done here on earth. Until that day of the Lord, what do we do? Well, we have a job to focus on. We have a task to accomplish. And it brings us to our one abiding lesson from Haggai's fourth message here. And that is to rise up in hope and live for God and his glory. That is what we do in the meantime. Listen, just as Zerubbabel was chosen for the purpose of rebuilding the temple, listen, so we have been chosen for the purpose of building God's church today. So don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Listen, be strong and keep doing the work of the Lord. Don't be afraid of what's going on around you. Don't be afraid when you watch the news. Take courage. Why? Because the Lord says, I am with you. Listen, we have every reason to rise up in hope. Listen, our Lord will what? He will prevail. Amen? Our Lord will not only prevail, but he will reign. And it's not he will reign, yes, but he is reigning even now, but he does it from heaven. And one day he will reign and put an end to all this chaos, and he will reign in the millennial kingdom. And we, like Zerubbabel, will reign with him. The question is, will you be there? How many of you have a DVR or TiVo? You know what a DVR, digital video recorder? I've often said since I now have a DVR that it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And the benefit of a DVR is you can digitally record your favorite programs. And, and in my case, that's often sports programs 
or your favorite show, and, and you can then watch it at your convenience, and you can also fast forward through all the monotonous, worthless commercials. So you can take an hour program, and you can watch it in about 43 minutes. It's pretty cool. One of my favorite uses of a DVR, though, is I will oftentimes record a basketball game. And as you guys know, I'm a huge Kansas Jayhawk fan. Anybody a KU fan here? Yes. Mary, Mary uh, I'll, uh, Olson, she's my camaraderie KU fan. Mary, raise your hands so everybody knows. There she is. She's a huge KU fan. Now, I feel sorry for her because her husband's an MU fan. And so they're a house divided, although we're still praying that he will come to the light. <laughs> Just kidding. I root for MU when they're not playing KU. But anyways, I will often DVR the KU basketball game, like I did yesterday. I was here working most of the day. They played at 5 o'clock in the Big 12 championship game. Some of you may have saw, and they played against Texas. And so the game started at 5. I got home around 6 o'clock, and I began to watch the KU game through the DVR. And Darla's laying in bed there with me, and we're kind of watching the game. And, and of course, I want to know who wins. So, you know, I get to, I, I, you know, I go to live action, and I find out they're winning, they're going to win the game. And I will often, I told Zach this, I will often record KU basketball games and find out who wins and then watch the game. In fact, I thoroughly enjoy that. Now, you know why that is? There, there's a huge difference in watching a basketball game when you already know the outcome of the game, when you already know who wins, especially when KU wins. A huge difference. Huge difference. I mean, I, I watch the game with peace and confidence and comfort. <laughs> When KU makes a turnover and throws the ball away or they miss three shots in a row and, and Texas is now making a comeback after they built a big lead, I'm not sweating it. <laughs> I know the outcome. I know who's already won. And I watch that game. I'm telling you, it's awesome. It's great. Folks, in the same way, Haggai is telling us. He's kind of DVR'd, if you will history for us. And he's letting us know who wins. We know who wins. We already know the outcome. Now that ought to make a difference in our life. I watched the KU game last night. Did I watch it with discouragement? No. Did I watch it with hope? I was the most hope-filled person in my house. I knew they won. Did I get irritated at some of the miscues? In fact, did I get riled up and I scream at the TV sometimes even though I win? Did I go in the see? Yes. That's normal. I'm a human being. But when you know who wins, it makes all the difference in the world. The problem with us sometimes, we forget God's already DVR'd history. We get so caught up in the moment. And so we begin to let our circumstances, we begin to let people, we begin to let things within us and around us affect us of living for God in his glory. It doesn't mean we're beyond discouragement. 
But folks, we ought to be able to overcome that. We ought to be encouraged because we know our Lord prevails and we know he reigns. Now, before I close, there's one big difference between us watching the KU game and know who wins. Some of us, we watch it like we're on the sidelines. We are called to participate in the game, not to watch it in the comfort of our home with a remote control, sitting back and letting somebody else play the game and do the work. God's called me and he's called you as a child of Christ to get her done. And he's already told us ahead of time what the outcome is. Let me ask you this. Do you think it would make a difference to those KU players if they knew yesterday that they were already going to win? They're going to play loosey-goosey. And it makes a huge difference. Let me close with these words of encouragement from the Apostle Paul. They're in your notes. I love what Paul says here. He says in Romans 15, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse. Who's the root of Jesse? It's Christ. And he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, that is in Christ, the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So be encouraged. Our Lord will prevail, and our Lord will reign. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And oh, how we give you praise. And we thank you for the words of hope that you have given to us through the prophet Haggai. Lord, we praise you that you have sovereignly chose us for your kingdom. That you have placed your hand upon us from the beginning of the foundations of this world. And have opened up our eyes to respond to your gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, that's your grace at work. And so, Lord, may we be humbled by that. May we be hope-filled by that, knowing that you will prevail in the end and you will reign. But, Lord, in the meantime, you've given us a job. You've called us to build your church. And for us who are gathered here at Glenwood, it's about making a difference through this ministry in this city and community. And, Lord, we need your help in that. It's not easy. It's hard. It's work. And we grow weary at times. We get discouraged at times. And so remind us and empower us of the job that is before us. And help us to fulfill it and complete it for your honor and your glory. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.